Today's reading is John chapter 11, verses 1 to 45. It's a biggie but a goodie. Hear the word of the Lord. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then, and then he went to his disciples. Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble for they will see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble for they have no light. After, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus was already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come with Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into this world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here. And... She said, he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Mary had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed it, how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? 
Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more moved, uh, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Mary, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he's been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Then the dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. Amen. Thanks, Leanne. That was a marathon, wasn't it? But, um, but I mean... If you believe that's God's word to us, God's word to you, God's word, could you say, thanks, God? <laughs> and thanks, Leanne, um, for your stamina there. It's got to be done sometimes. We've got to read the whole story. Rest assured, I'm not going verse by verse through that whole thing. What a great story. What I do want to do this morning is pick the eyes out of this and, and make the, the case for us that there's a couple of key points uh, that add up to the top line there that really one of, one, one of the things that this passage achieves for us is, is it reminds us that the amazing goodness of God is recognisable when we do two things. Firstly, when we see things from a heavenly perspective. And secondly, when we live with earthly compassion. The recognisability of the goodness of God, the goodness of the Father, is Jesus' main concern in this passage. So uh, we can read in verse 4, it talks about the sisters, Mary and Martha, sending a word to Jesus about the illness of his loved one, his friend, Lazarus. And Jesus responds uh, to this word that this sickness will not end in death. And then he says this, no, it is for God's glory so that God may be glorified through it. And what we're talking about when we're talking about the glory of God is his amazing goodness. His amazing goodness, you'll see on the top line. So that's the concern of this passage. And that is the concern of Jesus in this passage, the amazing goodness of God. I'm not sure what you think about when you think about the glory of God. It's something that comes up repeatedly in Scripture. Um, and if you look at sort of the definition of it, it'll talk about the, the honour of God, the honourability of God, the righteousness of God 
the rightness of God. And sometimes in the expression of this um, sort of the importance of the glory of God, you run into a, a kind of Christianity, and I, I, it's still a Christianity. I think people who, who occupy this space are brothers and sisters, but it's very concerned with his rightness, with his honour, with his otherness to us, how different he is from us. And that's correct. However, the fuller picture takes into account that God is good. <laughs> so his righteousness and his goodness cannot be separated. I don't know about your story, about coming to faith. There's a good chance that you were impressed at some point on that journey with the righteousness of God. You were uh, aware by the spirit of your lack of righteousness, your sinfulness. However, Praise God it doesn't stop there, does it? Because salvation doesn't come simply by recognising what's wrong with us, all the ways that we might fall short of God's standard. At some point, we have a revelation of despite our unrighteousness, his love for us. He's so good. He's so good that he loves us, even though we might not be worthy of it. And ultimately... This should be what drives us as followers of Jesus, as it drives Jesus in this passage, that the amazing goodness of God might be made recognisable in the world. I was thinking as I was thinking about, it is good, it is good, isn't it? As I was thinking about this, so these are the two sort of premises, that we see things from a heavenly perspective and that we live with earthly compassion in order that his glory might be known, that his amazing goodness might be known. As I was thinking about this this week, I thought about um, Oprah Winfrey. There's an obvious connection there already, isn't there? <laughs> to be perfectly honest, uh, like, Oprah's not exactly my cup of tea. I never really watched the Oprah Winfrey show. There was a stage where it was somewhat unavoidable. And who she is as a person was unavoidable. She had a huge profile at one point in time. Despite the fact that I wasn't, I wasn't tuning into it every day, you know, I think there's a lot about Oprah that is really admirable. There's a lot that I do like about her. If you know her story, the grit, the entrepreneurship, the determination that was involved in her reaching the heights that she reached. And from what I've heard, she is a genuinely generous person. Um, there is a lot about her heart for the world that really, I think, resonates with the heart of God, that resonates with my heart. But I have uh, a memory of being somewhat frustrated about something particular with Oprah. And maybe you uh, might remember this incident, where she was talking about how she came about sort of leaving her Christian faith behind. So she grew up, as many black Americans do, in the church, um, but she sort of broke with uh, the church at one point in time. She tells the story of the charismatic preacher at her church one day saying and preaching, you know, saying as he preached, uh, that the Lord thy God is a jealous God. The Lord thy God uh, will punish us for our sins. And, and this is what Oprah says verbatim. I looked around and I thought, why would God be jealous? I cannot worship a jealous God. Has anyone heard that story? And... As I sort of raked over that, why does that trouble me? Why it troubles me is because I feel that I have had a revelation 
of the goodness of God. And I think she gets it all wrong. I think she misses it somehow. She's heard uh, that line about God's jealousy and she's sort of heard pettiness, the kind of human jealousy that we often have, that, you know, we want it all um, and uh, we don't want other people to have what's rightfully ours. Who knows that the jealousness of God is rooted actually in his love for us and his desire for our good because he knows that there's so much in this world that will take us away from what's good for us. And so he's jealous over that as his children He wants what's best for us. That's what the glory of God is about. And that's what it means when I talk about what Jesus is concerned with here, that he is concerned with making the amazing goodness of God recognisable. Another way of thinking of it, we're in this uh, series at the moment um, about... uh, you know, unless the seed falls to the ground, John 12, 24. Another way of thinking about it within the series, and it's been great to hear from um, our amazing teachers and preachers, as usual, uh, through the last month or so. But another way of thinking about it is in these terms. The amazing goodness of God is recognisable. The glory of God can be seen when we live as though we believe that passage, John 1224 when we live as though we believe this that unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies it remains alone it remains a single seed but if it dies it produces many seeds i'll explain this as we go along the kind of coincidence of these two ideas that we make god's amazing goodness recognisable when what? What was the first thing, the first premise? We make God's amazing goodness recognisable when we see from a heavenly perspective and when we live with earthly compassion. We make God's amazing goodness recognisable when we live as though we believe that unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus sort of says something quite cryptic in this passage, shock horror, he does it a bit, that I think is really key for us as we try and understand what's going on here. So as he's received this news of his beloved friend Lazarus being ill, um, and he says, actually, we need to go back to Judea. We need to go back to Bethany to see what's going on, to attend to Lazarus, uh, to attend to his sisters, Mary and Martha. The disciples respond, uh, but Rabbi, uh, a short while ago, they were trying to kill you there. And you want to go back? And maybe you pick up that there's a sort of a slight, subtle rebuke in this cryptic response of Jesus. Are there not 12 hours of daylight? He says, anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by the world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. What Jesus is saying here, I wonder if you've picked it up, is that there is a right way of seeing things and a wrong way of seeing things. If you see things the right way, you won't stumble. But if you see things the wrong way, you may stumble. Who here believes that there's a right way of seeing things? Yeah. 
there is a right way of seeing things. Jesus here is seeing things from a heavenly perspective. And he's somewhat frustrated that his disciples don't see it. They're concerned for his and their safety. We're going back to the place where we were nearly killed. Why would we do that? Jesus says, I'm not so concerned about whether I live or die. I'm concerned about making God's amazing goodness recognisable. His concern is with the amazing goodness of God, with God's glory over and above his personal safety. He goes on to speak from this heavenly perspective. He says, our friend, to his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. Even if we're going at great danger, I'm going to wake Lazarus up. Leanne, I loved your tone when you uh, read the disciples' response. Oh, oh, well, that's good. I mean, if he's been sleeping, uh, he'll get better. They're not getting it. And so Jesus tells them plainly, Lazarus is dead, guys. (laughs) He's not sleeping the kind of sleep uh, that will sort of restore him. He's dead. But he goes on, it's uh, for your sake... I am glad that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So we see here again, the disciples are kind of blind to what Jesus sees, that there is a more significant perspective, (laughs) one that Lazarus is dead, one that Jesus isn't too worried about whether he uh, gets stoned. He's worried about God's glory because he sees things from a heavenly perspective. So as Jesus in his divinity can see the whole span of history, the fact that his friend Lazarus is in the grave isn't of a huge concern because he knows as the one who has power over life and death that it is not the end for Lazarus. He knows as John 12, which is in the next chapter from this, would tell us and remind us that the seed must fall to the ground. I like the comment from Thomas. Let us also go that we may die with him. And and I like that comment because I can relate to it. Because again, Thomas is he's he's past the stage of just being worried about whether he's going to die. He's willing to follow Jesus to death, but he still doesn't get the full picture of what it is that Jesus wants to do. He's just accepting, okay, my rabbi's going to die. I guess I'm going to die as well. Somehow not grasping the whole picture. So Jesus and the disciples arrive in Bethany in Judea. And Lazarus has been dead there for four days. Um, And the text tells us that it's really dead for four days because Mary and Martha are concerned that he's going to pong a little bit. But Jesus speaks to Mary and Martha, um, again from this heavenly perspective. And we see, again, like the disciples, that they don't get the whole picture. They're partway there, maybe like Thomas is, but they don't get the whole picture. It's as if when I read the words of Martha, she knows what she should believe. Um, Listen to this, Jesus, uh, Martha says, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died 
but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. So that's promising. She has a level of faith in Jesus. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Do you believe that? And here's Martha's personality, I think, sort of saying what she thinks she should say. I know that he will rise again in the last days on the resurrection. Jesus is sort of speaking to the now. I've got the power over life and death now. And Martha sort of is looking at him going, I know that I'm supposed to believe that he will rise again. Jesus goes on, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Do you believe this? Again, Martha replies, I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. She falls just short of saying, I believe you can raise him to life. If you know how the Jews pictured the Messiah, he wasn't necessarily a figure that had the power over life and death. So she's saying, I I believe you, the Messiah, is that enough? Still falling short of the full picture. Similarly, with Mary, Jesus uh, talks to her and she says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. She's mourning. Her brother is dead. The chance that Jesus could save him, gone. This is where the passage turns. And I want to take us from recognising that first premise that we need, in order to make God's goodness recognisable, we need to see things from a heavenly perspective. The passage shifts. This is sort of like the apex of it. And the second premise that I want to talk about comes into view that we need to operate with earthly compassion. Because it says uh, those famous words, the shortest passage in Scripture, that Jesus wept. The amazing goodness of God is recognisable and we see things with a heavenly perspective as Jesus has been doing. But here we see him moved with earthly compassion. Jesus has been right all along. The disciples who have doubted him have been wrong. He's just been giving them straight answers back. (laughs) Believe in me, I can do it. And they don't quite grasp it. And yet, here in verse 33, it says, When Jesus saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? Jesus asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And so he weeps. I want to draw your attention to, and I'll do this quickly. I, um, I always feel somewhat apologetic about just getting a little bit Bible nerdy with you, but um, this is worth it, trust me. So the phrase translated deeply moved in spirit Um, it comes up uh, a handful of times in the New Testament. And it is most often translated, I don't know if you can see that, but um, the blue represents how it's most often translated, the red represents how it's translated only here in chapter 11 of John's Gospel. It's most often translated to rebuke, to rebuke. So Matthew 9 talks about Jesus um, sternly ordering uh, 
his disciples to keep his identity a secret. See that no one knows of this. He rebukes them firmly. In Mark chapter 143, it says, after sternly warning uh, people, he sends them away. In Mark 14.5, it says, for this ointment, and you'll know this story, I imagine, for this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And the disciples scolded the woman who made that great offering. So you can see there 75% of the time this word deeply moved is used in the New Testament. It means to scold, to rebuke. And here... In John chapter 11, it means to be deeply moved. Kind of different meanings really, aren't they? To scold someone else and to be deeply moved in our spirit. If you haven't picked up on what's going on here, it's as though Jesus, in being right, recognises that the people he loved are somehow missing out on the good that he wants to do, on the good that the Father has in plan for them. So it's as if he is rebuking his own spirit. It's it's as if he's saying, I've been right, 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 right. And then I see my sister, the one I love, not getting it, weeping. It's as though... And this is a funny idea and maybe it's got something to do with the kind of divinity and humanity of Christ and how they relate to one another. And so he's saying, Jesus, to himself, Jesus, show love here. Show compassion here. Your sisters and brothers are hurting. (laughs) You might be right that you have the power to raise this man from the dead, but they're not seeing it. Go down to them and meet them at their level. Show them love in such a way as they will know and understand it. That, my friend, my friends, is the glory of God, his rightness and his very goodness. I told you it was worth it. So Jesus is moved with compassion And he sees things from the heavenly perspective, but he sees the pain of his friends. And it's as though he scolds himself. He lives with earthly compassion as well as heavenly eyes that see the truth that sometimes eludes us. The amazing goodness of God is recognisable when we see things from a heavenly perspective. But we live with earthly compassion It says in verse 36, Then the Jews said, See how he loved Lazarus. Interesting that that cuts through. His love for Lazarus cuts through with the Jews. John uses the language. It's a little bit awkward, actually. But to kind of speak maybe about those who are on the fringe that maybe haven't quite gotten what he's come to do. The next verse says, But some of them said, Could not he have opened the eyes of the blind man? who had kept this man and kept this man from dying. Who knows that miracles don't necessarily change people's minds? You know, if you're adamant with your yet-to-be-Christian friends about the power of Jesus, 
Don't be surprised if that doesn't reach them. What reaches people is what Jesus shows here. Capacity to love. Love changes hearts and minds. Somehow even miracles don't always do it. I'm drawing to an end here. We will take communion and I'll call the band up in a moment. But um, one of the best things I follow on the internet is um, the website of this man. uh, And I almost didn't include him in the sermon because I can't pronounce his name. Alain? Alain de Baton? Does someone else know? (laughs) Chris O. So uh, he's a philosopher. He looks like a philosopher, right? He's got a philosopher's name. Um, And he's famously an atheist, but he really believes in the best of people. And um, he's kind of motivated that by good thinking and engagement with the best of culture, with the best of who we are as people, that humanity can can do better, that there is a brighter future ahead. I guess we'd call that classic sort of humanism. And he's got a website called The School of Life where he tries to sort of take what he's learned as a philosopher, because philosophers are very often concerned with, well, how should we live? How could we live good lives? And he tries to sort of make it, and I think he does a good job, actually, of kind of making it accessible for normal people like me. And... um, I noticed he posted something this week on prayer, and I want to read it to you. It's easy to laugh, says Alain. Alain. Maybe I could get used to saying it. It'd be, it'd be gratifying to, uh, to speak French, wouldn't it? I heard Junie have this beautiful phrase yesterday. I was listening to their conversation in the back of the car. She said, I like the way that word feels in my mouth. Alain. It's easy to laugh at those who pray when one's an atheist. And not too much has ever gone wrong in one's life. How ridiculous to clasp one's hands together and beg for help from someone in the sky who doesn't even exist. A saviour from whom one has only invented out of fear and whom one is relying on a little as a child might on their teddy bear. Listen to those desperate innocents mumbling to their mummy or daddy in the clouds, to which the only robust answer is to say, and this is Alain's voice here, wait until it happens to you. Wait until your child is diagnosed with a fatal illness. Your business is threatened with bankruptcy. Your reputation is forever shredded. You are condemned. You become known as a laughing stock and are damned and cursed. And then see how idiotic it is to pray. Is prayer really still so very silly when you're lying prostrate on the ground in agony? Or might you not have a sliver of respect and even of desperate envy for those who don't have to face the worst alone? At 3am our heart beating so hard it threatens to burst, crouched on the bathroom floor wailing, we can still be proud of our atheism, but perhaps sad about it as well. How achingly lovely it would be to be able at such awful moments to close our eyes and to say, please, dear Lord, take pity on me. 
forgive me for what I have done. Look with mercy on me. Allow me to get through this unharmed. Don't punish me as I deserve to be punished. Help me. How stupidly sensible we have become with our plethora of carefully reasoned arguments as to why we really are all alone, why death truly is the end, and why there can be absolutely no magic and no rescue. How uselessly addicted we have become to mature truths. How hopeless that it is when we are at our wits' ends. How correct and cruel science has turned out to be. The non-existence of God should never disguise the fierce longing that a God might exist. In our deepest crises, we non-believers deserve immense compassion for what we've taken on. We are one of the first generations every we are one of the first generations ever to have tried to get through this appalling circus of life on reason alone. No one has ever been so clever or so foolish. Really fascinating, the comments on this. There were plenty of people who follow him because he's an atheist and share his atheism and couldn't get what he was saying and imagine that he was sort of saying religion makes more sense than not having religion. What he was really saying is that it's, it's difficult <laughs> to not believe in God. You know, it's, it's a human thing in crisis to call out, to hope that there might be one who could save us, to hope that there might be one who has power over illness, power over sickness, power over death. And I agree. <laughs> I agree. I have compassion for Alon and his friends who don't believe in God. I'm moved (laughs) with compassion. The difference between Alon and myself is I feel privileged, (laughs) I feel blessed to have had the God of the universe bend down and reveal himself to me. At some moment in time, Christ became known to me. The hope. Fulfillable in him. And so, more than I'm an alone, though at times, I have my times, right? I think I'm a little more of a Lazarus, and I wonder if the band could get up. I will just read this very briefly as we come to an end. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance and he said, take away the stone. But there's going to be a bad smell. He's been in there for four days, said Martha. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe see the amazing goodness of God you will see his glory so they rolled away the stone Jesus looked up and said Father I thank you that you have heard me I knew that you always hear me but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me when he had said this Jesus called in a loud voice Lazarus come out The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen. 
garment cloth around his face. And Jesus said, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, it says, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. The amazing goodness of God became recognisable to those who were there. Because not only did Jesus stand in the truth, not only did he see things from a heavenly perspective, that he had defeated death. He was going to fully manifest that one day soon, that he had the power over death in his hands. But he was moved with compassion for people and he loved them in their language. And if we are to imitate him, that is how. And that is how his amazing goodness will come to be recognised in your